Welcome to the Product Quest Podcast. Thanks for joining us on our journey to better understand innovation and product strategy. My name is Scott Burleson, and joining me as always, my co-hosts, Jan Vermouth and Jonathan Edwards. Today, we welcome our special guest, Dr. Min Bassiter. It's very hard to introduce Dr. Bassiter for the simple reason that we're talking about one of the legends in innovation. So let me hit the high points and just know this will be woefully incomplete. Min is Professor Emeritus at McMaster University and founder of Bassiter Applied Creativity. He has three patents and a PhD in industrial organizational psychology. But Min is best known for his creativity system, Complexity. In the 1970s, Min developed his method when, Bert, when building upon the work of colleague Sid Parnes. It's a system, a complete system, with all the essentials for defining problems, for generating solutions, and for selecting the best to act upon. It also considers the dynamics of different thinking styles, including an innovation profiler, which we are sure to discuss. Dr. Min Bassiter, welcome to the Product Quest podcast. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. And uh, I wanted a, a little slip of the tongue there. It's simplexity, not uh, uh, not complexity. I, th- I think. I think. Simplex. Simplexity. Did I say complexity? Yeah, yeah I, th- I think you yeah. might have. You might have. But it's a uh, anyway, it's a great way to introduce where the heck did simplexity come from. And it was simplex originally. It was simplex. Right. right. Yeah. My, my notebook yeah. I have oh, uh, 25 years ago. That's what it says. Yeah. Simplex on the front. Yeah. Simplex. Yeah. We should have, we might've left it as simplex, but uh, I'll cover that as well. I got a license plate on one of my cars that says simplexity It's simplexity. And uh, it, 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 it uh, occurred when I was uh, uh, having a conversation with uh, 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 Craig Goble at uh, Vogel at uh, uh, university of Cincinnati. He's a, uh, uh, what do they call it? The uh, the uh, plot, the people who design stuff, design. And uh, we were talking about. Uh, he was talking about uh, the uh, number of people who tend to pretend they know uh, a lot about uh, uh, about innovation, and they will get a lot of money for delivering uh, speeches. And uh, he said uh, it, it's a real problem of getting people to understand. There's more than just sitting and listening to a lecture. And I said, yeah, the, I said, Craig, the problem is that um, if you say you do one thing like product development, they'll say, sorry, we wanted something on, on, uh, on manufacturing. If you say that, they'll say we want something else. So we have trouble kind of explaining to people that all we do is solve problems. We help people solve problems. It doesn't matter what they are. And I said, uh, uh, a colleague and I were tra- saying, well, how do we tell people what we do? And we thought about it. He said, you know, all we do is take complex problems, no matter what they are, and we try to make them simple. That's what we try to do. And Craig said, well, then what you do is called simplexity. That's where it came from. So uh, complexity down to simplexity. So I beefed it up to simplexity. I still have quite a few people from a long time ago still with it who are doing simplex. They like simplex, and I'm thinking maybe we should have left it that way. <laughs> but where the where the name came from was uh, uh, was uh, when I uh, you know my background uh, was basically engineering physics at the University of Toronto, and I took engineering physics because I didn't know what to do. I needed to get a good job and it was only going to be four years you can get a job 
and we didn't have much money in the family and uh, medicine was going to be at least six plus and uh, so was law up here at six plus but uh, engineering was only four so I thought okay uh, I don't know what to do but I'll take engineering I guess and then I asked the magic question which is uh, which engineering what's the hardest engineering course there is and everybody said engineering physics is so hard don't do it because you'll be up against the smartest people in the world who come to this course so i thought well if it's hard it must be good kind of cod liver oil it's got to be good for you it tastes bad and the second thing was i really wasn't much of an engineer so it, it had the least amount of practicality and so i took the darn thing so uh the very first day I've been classed, there were 167 people in the room in this big amphitheater. And a guy with a tie comes in and says, that's a professor. And he said, okay, I want you to look to the left and look to the right. And one of you three is not going to be here next year. Hmm. What a way to start. So I looked at him and him. I said, that's not, that's going to be him. So now it's competition. We start running to be first in line uh, for class and stuff like that. Well, at the end of the first year, we're down to 103. And now everybody said the second year was the real hard year. And I said, oh my goodness. At the end of the second year, we're at 67, 67 people in this class. And what a way to run a, what a way to run education. So I'm learning, well, knowing it, I'm learning a lot about uh, team dynamics and everything else. And, uh, so now they let you live. And uh, um, I got used to uh, not learning much other than to solve complicated one answer problems, equations, equations one after another. And uh, there were people in the room who were good at this. And I, I, I wasn't bad, but I wasn't good. So I ended up squeaking through and uh, uh, ending up with uh, a bit of a chemical problem. Uh, 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 what do you call it a specialty the lucky thing was there were a lot of people looking for engineers and you could show up and you could get a lot of interviews so i ended up with um you know i don't know what i'm doing and uh so i end up with uh, and I, that was toronto and nearby toronto there's a city called hamilton and uh, in hamilton there was a company called procter and gamble now, I knew Procter & Gamble. I used Crest Toothpaste and I, I, Ivory. I knew all that stuff. And Well, they're nice people. They're really nice people. And they invited me out. And then they said, you've got a choice. You can go to that side of the street. That's where we have manufacturing. On this side of the street, there's something called research and development. I had never heard of research and development, so I took it. And uh, so I took it and I liked it. And uh, so when people ask me, how did you get to what you're doing is I, what I did was I didn't know what I was doing. And Woody Allen one time said something very profound. 80% of anything is just showing up. So I show up, I go here, go there. Well, I end up in, uh, uh, in Hamilton and uh, I end up doing a pretty good job. You know, what can go wrong if you're making soap and stuff like that? It's not that technical, I don't think. Well, it turns out that uh, I was good at uh, uh, two things. I could do the uh, regular stuff, but I also was good at uh, making things happen. Um, I, I had a way of involving people, making things happen from one end to the other, where a lot of my colleagues were good at one thing or another thing. They were either this or this. And so I ended up 
looking pretty good. And uh, so the company said, uh, how would you like to go down to Cincinnati? That's our headquarters. And don't worry, you'll be coming back. I, uh, okay, if I'm coming back, why wouldn't I go? So they put me into a brand new division called the industrial division. Now, P&G is not industrial. It makes things for supermarkets. But they said there might be a way that we can uh, invade the industrial market and all kinds of new products, drums and the things like that. And I went down as kind of a charter member. Uh, and they had some people there who were kind of long in the tooth and they were selling scrap soap and that. But no, we're going to get really, really good. So I went down there and uh, thinking I'm coming back in a couple of years, things went very, very well. Uh, we were very unstructured, unlike Procter & Gamble, very unstructured, yet uh, we had a sales department and there was me. And all we did was make them up. Make, they said, we need this. I would, I would figure it out. We need that. We need that. And I got to be very good at, uh, uh, as they say, picking them up and laying them down. I could get generate a lot of stuff. And uh, at the same time, it became obvious that what I was good at was getting things done. And I was very good at getting people together, making things happen. And I was a process person. I began to understand process. And uh, uh, then I began to get requests from other parts of the company. Could you help us do this in uh, such and such a plant? Could you help us do this? And all of a sudden, um, a central... Uh, group downtown called Management Systems Division kind of recognized what I was doing. And they were in charge of industrial engineering for all of the plants, which is making change. But they said, uh, this guy knows how to make change in other pl places, not just manufacturing, marketing, sales everywhere. So they took me downtown. And um, what had happened was I'd had some very big successes uh, in, in my consulting and uh, one of the big successes, uh, which we're going to talk about later on, was the um, uh, discovery of uh, the answer to Irish Spring. And uh, I had the uh, vice president of um, R&D for the whole company uh, who heard about our success with uh, coming up with this uh, great solution uh, to that problem. And uh, he's, uh, he sent... Uh, well, I'll cover that a little later on. But what happened was he said, could we find a way to make our um, engineers much more conceptual, much more conceptual? I, I didn't know what it meant exactly, but boy, did uh, I, I, didn't, I enrolled at the University of Cincinnati and I was taking courses at the PhD level. And all of a sudden I heard manna from heaven. Here's my dissertation topic right here. So uh, I, I went to the University of Cincinnati at nighttime in the, in the management department, and I did a uh, dissertation inside the company with all the resources behind me on showing that you can get people to think more conceptually. I proved it uh, um, analytically, and uh, the darn thing won a, won a big award, the best dissertation uh, of that year by the American Psychological Association. And uh, so uh, all of a sudden, here I am. I've spent seven years taking courses and getting ready and also doing my work. I had a laboratory in front of it, a laboratory right here that I was working with, real people, real problems. And um, along comes um, a university. By the way, I had decided to stay. 
after a couple of years, things were going so well, I reluctantly said, I will stay in Cincinnati and I will sell my house back in Canada and we will stay here. That was a big deal. That was a real big deal. And uh, <clears throat> uh, so I stayed and the opportunities came. And uh, McMaster came along in Hamilton, Ontario. They're uh, a very research intensive university. And they said, um, we would like you to come back to uh, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. We're starting up courses at organizational behavior. You've got a PhD and you're Canadian, so why don't you come back? Well, that was hard. That was uh, the real big difficulty of leaving a wonderful place called Procter & Gamble and going back. But uh, I thought, uh, I talked to my dissertation advisor, George Green, and he said, well, he said, uh, if you stay at Procter & Gamble, you're going to be kind of small potatoes. There's a whole world out there that needs you. And he said, uh, if you stay at Procter & Gamble, you can pretty well guess what you'll be doing for the next 25 years. But if you go to McMaster, you will have a new future. I memorize those words. You will have a new future. Of course, it's going to be hard. I, who gets a chance to have a new future at that age? And... Uh, it's, it's, it's hard. It's going to be hard. Nothing's easy. So I did. So now here's where Simplex comes in. When I uh, joined P&G, I said, okay, what am I going to do? There's two things. There's two separate things. Here. There are a lot of people in innovation who do consulting. That's what they do. They do consulting. There are other people who are academics, and so they don't do any consulting. They just do theory. And I want to do both. I don't want to be knocking on doors, selling stuff. I want them to come to uh, an expert who say, could you help us? And I'd say, gee, I'd like to help you. So I formed what's called the Center for Research in Applied Creativity. And uh, the word applied was key because creativity at that time was thought of fun and games. We just go throw stuff at each other and have a good time. It's real. It's, so it's applied. And I want to do research. And that, that's going to be my life. So uh, that started it, and uh, for that next many years, I've been running a dual career. Uh, my research is done while I'm consulting. I do the two things at the same time because I'm real people that I can work with, and I uh, thought I got to give myself a name, uh, a brand, and I brainstormed all the things that I was trying to teach people, and one word stood out was simple. My job was to get people to think simple. I found that all kinds of people could not solve problems because they use fancy words and they could never really get down to what are we really talking about. Uh, and I found that the people really liked it when I got them to say, what do you really mean by that? What do you mean by that? So the idea was simple. And who are the, who are the most creative people in the world? They are kids. And what do they do? Think simple. So the whole thing became, I put an X on it, and it's called Simplex. That's exactly uh, where it came from. And um, so that became um, the brand. And uh, from then on, I have been running into people like yourself uh, who um, uh, like what I'm doing, and we get together, we talk. And, uh, and uh, basically what I've done is, uh, I guess the word is enable. I've been enabling people all over the place uh, to uh, start up their own practices, if they're inside companies, uh, to catalyze uh, problem solving inside the companies. And uh, 
uh, we have three level, four levels of training that we do. One is base uh, level one, where we teach people, get people to understand how they they can they can learn how to be more creative. The, the process. Uh, second level is uh, facilitation. We can facilitate small groups of people to solve problems. Third level is uh, integration. I know this stuff so well, I can integrate it and catalyze problem solving all over the company, 24 seven, 365. And finally train the trainer where I'm so smart at this. I love it so much that I can teach other people to do level one. I can teach them how to uh, teach others. So those developed and uh, ended up with uh, several uh, major successes with companies and developed an awful lot of in, uh, people inside companies who I, uh, who would take over for me inside. And many people started their own consulting. Uh, and uh, so that's basically, if you want to talk about the roots of the Simplex process, that's how it happened. And uh, none of this could be predicted. What's, I just what, did one thing after another after another. And uh, I, um, there were certain times when I had to make some uh, when I left P&G, all of a sudden, there was a flurry of companies who had heard about me and wanted me to help them. And uh, that uh, uh, Ford Motor Company, uh, Frito-Lay, and they all were looking for ways to engage people and go beyond just uh, uh, doing uh, little process improvements, but engage people in doing big stuff, uh, big changes. And that was exciting. Uh, that was really exciting for me. To the point that, how in the world do you keep a, uh, how do you keep yourself in a job at pro, at uh, McMaster University doing research, and you got all this stuff coming at you? So I began to develop associates who could help me with the uh, the stuff that we were doing. So now we have a network of people pretty much around the world, uh, of people who are pretty good at what they do, and make a living at what they do. And uh, so that's basically uh, what we ended up calling it the, uh, what do we call it, Bassetter Applied Innovation. It was Bassetter uh, Applied Creativity, but since innovation, see to me, applied creativity, innovation are the same thing. So uh, now innovation is a more popular thing. And maybe I was 30 years ahead of my time, uh, but now it's Bassetter Applied Innovation. So anyway, that's how I got to, that's how I got started where, where, where it came from. That's so a, I've got a little <laughs> right. I've got a little list of things you said we could talk about, or you could just lead me into other things. Yeah, well, I've got a few questions. First of all, yeah, me too. That, yeah, um, <laughs> I just think that's an amazing story. A few themes I'm just looking at. Um, so look, some of your motivations for what your selection was often. What's the most difficult or most challenging? Uh, yeah. You looked at those, yeah. those drew you in. Um, it's funny. That's your logic for your major is virtually the same as mine. I, I majored in electrical <laughs> engineering. It was like I could get a job right away. And as crazy as it sounds, it's like, well, it's something really hard, so it must be valuable. I mean, it's it, yeah. and, I, and I seem to have some math ability. That was sort of that was <laughs> that doesn't sound like good logic. But that was that was my thinking. And when you were describing selecting your major it was like wow that's yeah 
that reminds yeah. me. Yeah. By the way, it was exactly the same for me too. And I actually studied physics like you. And uh, in addition, I, I don't know if this is a physics thing because they told us exactly the same thing. Look at your left and at your right. They'll one of, I don't remember <laughs> now if it was two of them or one of them uh, will stay, uh, but uh, it, 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 so exactly the same thing for me. It, they told me that too. Yeah. NC State, they said the exact, the engineering dean said the exact same thing. <laughs> Must be personal, <laughs> yeah, personal truth. Um, yeah, uh, with, uh, when uh, you're, you know, when you're in high school, you you, you don't really know what you're doing, and uh, yeah. so that was a, a grasp at that straw. It's got to be hard. It's got to be good. There was uh, no, uh, I had nothing else to guide me, so you just go do it. One of the big yeah. things that really jumps out at me is when you, when you, I'm not going to have your exact wording, but um, right. But something you said in the innovation space or consulting space, you often use technical language things. It makes things more complicated. And I, I yeah. think I see that even today and which is interesting, but, but you saw that as a challenge um, where the, this, where this complexity um, didn't provide a lot of value. So this might, this might seem, well, I'm just sort of curious. How would you define? So everything is about getting things simple, simpler. How do you define simple? What makes something simpler? What's the value of that? Well, the uh, well, the saying is, you cannot help somebody solve a problem if you're not sure what they're talking about. Mm. That's absolutely critical. Um, and the the work that we do, um, two uh, two uh, two basic skills are divergence where we generate options of all kinds, facts, from, and convergence. And we go 50-50. And in convergence, it's a very, we have a, a process called telescoping, which I have uh, patented. And telescoping is, um, well, it, this is where it happened. Uh, I was, one of my really good uh, colleagues, Gwen Speranzini, um, I, I taught her and she went out on her own and she uh, became a, a key person, upper management with Nabisco, Nabisco Canada. And she was bringing in simplexity thinking all over the company, including the top people. So she created a, uh, an event where there would be several, about 30 people. And we'd split them up to about five groups. And I'd be, I'd be, uh, facilitating one group and she'd be another and there'd be another and another. So we're going through and we're together, we're doing fact finding. So we, we each got a problem. We're doing fact finding. And, um, then, uh, um, uh, then, then we're supposed to, we do a lot of divergent fact finding, fact finding all over the place. Now it's time to converge. So I'm uh, getting ready to get my group to converge. And, uh, I look over there and Gwen, They've already gone. They've already gone. They've moved on. Wait a minute. So Gwen says, well, we picked our best ones. We moved on. I said, whoa, whoa. Uh, so Gwen, who's really good, even I have not got across to her how important converging well is. So I invented something on the spot. I said, could everybody stop? Come on in here. Uh, I want to show you converging is like a telescope. And it's got three parts to it. First thing, we have you know, 30, 40, 50 facts or ideas up on a list. And the first thing we do is everybody gets one or two or three converging dots, and they make a choice of what they think are the most important ones. Okay, yeah. 
So that brings it down to about 12. And then what we do is we don't do any judging. We clarify to understand. That's all we do. What each person has to do is say, this is, I picked this one, and why I picked it is, and what I meant by it is. Who else picked it? Who else picked it? Everybody has to explain why they picked it. And now we have a good conversation of what did you really mean by that? And often it meant two or three different things to different people. But during that session, all we do is understand, 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 and use little words. And then we go to the third stage, which is we pick the vital few. But now we absolutely understand them. Everybody is, is, has been heard. Uh, everybody has been We don't do any voting. We don't vote on anything. We, and then we finally agree on what the top three are. In our language, exactly what we mean, we exactly know what it is. And then we can go on to the next step, which we call uh, problem definition. But it happened to be, and I, uh, it was really instructive to me that someone that I had taught so well and gone on our own, I still hadn't gone converging really understood. So that's where simplexity comes in. And uh, uh, you have to, in a group, you have to get to the point where you know, and it's not okay to say, oh, we all know what they mean. That's what I ended up. Oh, we all know what, it, wait a second, wait a second. And that's a big mistake if we, they're in such a hurry to solve the problem. They can't take the time to understand, understand. And you build ownership. Now, even if uh, one of my dots wasn't picked, at least they listened to me and I got it. And I agree that this is the best we can go. So developing ownership is critical. And um, so in the process, there's a process, but it has, you know, there's a process. We use eight step process, but it's got diverging and converging every single step, every single step. And when you've got a team operating, uh, we don't move ahead. It's a host of cards. You can't just say, well, oh, by the way, the, uh, the classic, uh, uh, definition of the word consensus doesn't work. In that classic definition, we, uh, I don't like it, but I, I can live with it. Uh-uh, it's got to be agreement. You don't live with it. You agree with it. You believe it's really important and you move ahead. Uh, absolutely vital. Otherwise, you didn't do enough of a job on uh, discussing uh, what, what the things mean. And it's a group decision. But also, the other, uh, when, when, when finally you have to pick between one or two, it, You've got to have an owner. That's another thing. You've got to have an owner. That's another reason why design thinking is getting, one of the reasons why design thinking is getting a bad rap. There's no ownership. Nobody owns the problem. They're just in there uh, helping. So you need an owner. Yeah, you might have two or three. And also, by the time you involve everybody, everybody's a part owner. But if, the, if you're down to choosing between one or two things, the owner has to say, so that's the one I like. And the whole session is about pleasing the owner. That's all we're trying to do. We're trying to please the owner. And uh, the owner, uh, and we're hoping to motivate the owner that he's getting excited and he's actually going to do something because the latter part of the process has to do with planning and implementation. So uh, I don't know whether I explained that. Yeah, now I, I had a, a really high, uh, out in California, Bakersfield, there was a company of a really smart, uh, it was an oil company, and um, they were having, price of oil was way down. It was like $6 a barrel. And these people had to take um, oil fields, which had already been plumbed and there's nothing much left. They had to bring them up and able to 
make a profit. So I got with the, uh, the really smart people and uh, they were using words that I didn't understand exactly. And, and that's a real, if I don't understand it, I don't think they do either. So they would say something. I said, does that mean look under the rock? <laughs> yeah, that's what it means. We use look under the rock as opposed to whatever thing that they said. So we use words like that. And, and we got somewhere. The, the, the company's still in business. And uh, uh, so that, those are examples. Look under the rock. I, I'll never forget that. Does that mean look under the rock? Yeah. So uh, can I just say, can I just say, I, I absolutely love this. I, I, I don't know where this is from, but I have this deep, deep aversion against jargon. Like, and, and I think it, it, it you, 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 you pointed it out so well. It, I think it's really so often it's used to hide mm. that, that you don't have a clue. You can, you can hide so much <laughs> behind jargon, yeah. behind, I don't know what rhetoric yeah. tricks and so on. And I loved it that, that one of the bigger things that you do is, can you just speak in simple terms? So everybody yeah. on the, and, and, and people think, that that is easy but it's quite the opposite i assume like yeah. really getting to a simple description of a problem is really really hard yes very hard uh what's uh, i really uh, understand what you said better now because of the pandemic uh up until the pandemic uh i was doing lots of uh, uh work consulting teaching and i was just talking to people i didn't have to really worry about exactly what I was saying, because I could see them nodding their heads and understanding. Yeah. But when the pandemic hit, we had to go digital. We had to start making our teaching. And now you had to really be careful about what you're saying. Uh, because you, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be uh, uh, digitized. It's going to be voiceover. It's got to be exact. And so I found that I was learning a lot about what I was really trying to say and saying it nice, simple language, I had to talk it. And that got me to uh, really uh, do a better job because I know exactly what I was trying to say, not uh, sort of. And uh, uh, it's very big. I think they use the word explicit or something like that, uh, tacit versus explicit. And uh, now, uh, right now, we're, uh, we're doing, we're producing quite a few uh, virtual uh, 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 productions and uh, uh, we're still doing it. Uh, and we uh, always make ourselves do a script. The script has to be very precise. We know what we're talking about. And then we can use the voiceover uh, 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 and that kind of thing. So uh, it's amazing how, uh, how that's so important to be, uh, how easy it is to not take the effort to be exact and how easy it is to just say, let's get on with it, just go. So that yeah. was one of the things. Oh, we all know what we mean. Oh, we all know what we mean, and they wanna, they wanna go. Yeah. Um, one of the big themes that jumps out at me just listening is the importance of. Well, going from complicated to simple is just. Well, you you mentioned that when somebody votes, that okay, they vote, then they explain why they voted that way, or, or they re-explain it, and it it occurs to me like we've all have we're all in our own brains, we're all in our own heads, we have these ideas, we have logic that is sort of maybe good, may not be as good, as, um, but 
when we have to communicate it, it forces us to think, first of all, to clarify what we, I might not even be clear on my thinking. I have to clarify that myself yeah. to communicate it to you. And then for you to repeat it back to me, what, what we're doing, we're using this crude instrument of words uh, that, you know, where we have these thoughts, it goes through words, we have to hear them, we have to, we have to, they're in our brain, they have to be reprocessed in another brain, we've got multiple people around, it's like we're just, it's all about communicating, like getting the whatever this, this, whatever the root of the issue is, and then um, if, I, if I can paraphrase a little bit, I think the problem with complexity is it's hiding, it's hiding, it creates an illusion that we're that we're, we're, we're to find the problem the same. It's hiding behind yeah. these things. And we, we say, hey, just look under the rock. And another thing, though, is um, it's more than that. About gaining agreement, um, I, I really like what you said. Like, consensus isn't good enough. And if I, I, I believe you that you're saying, tell me if I'm wrong, but it's that we don't want to leave anybody behind where I don't feel yeah. hurt. I don't think it's the right idea, but I'll go along with it. It's like we want yeah. – everybody to understand it as well as they can and by virtue of that knowledge that our goal is that they they we all subscribe to the same reasoning and logic in, in that for our buy-in for whatever our course of action is is that is that's that, exactly yeah. it's exactly it and uh the uh, one technique we use is called paraphrasing hmm. is uh so you say something that uh, uh, if i say uh, let me uh let me let me tell you what I think you said, mm. and I say it to you. Now I'm showing you uh, that I've, uh, I I I really respect what you said. I want to hear, and you uh, come back. You say, uh, "Yeah, that's it," or you say, "Not exactly," and then you repeat it, and we now we got it nailed down. You know, we nailed it down. So that's a very good technique for uh, assuring that you're getting uh, that you heard right but also you're valuing this person's contribution and uh, he feels valued in, uh, in, in what you're doing. And yeah. so you're building up the possibility that you're actually going to implement something when you're finished because uh, everybody is feeling ownership for what you're doing. So that's a really good technique. Uh, we, there's a lot of other techniques we use for uh, communication is, uh, you know, what that's a big word, but it really means uh, uh, for us, it's uh, making sure that everybody uh, knows the same, the same thing. They know the same words. They use the same words. Uh, the English language, uh, you know, any language, of course, it, it's the name of the game. Um, uh, one course I took uh, when I was at uh, Cincinnati, I had some very good uh, university professors on my team, and one of them uh, said, "You ought to take a course in uh, cognitive psychology." They're all trying to figure out what is it that I do. I was doing social psychology and uh, organi organizational behavior. And I said, okay. So <laughs> I had never had a course in psychology in my life. So now I go into this. The room is an eight, it's an 800 level club. Everybody in there is getting a PhD in cognitive psychology. And I'm just one guy and I know nothing. So now what happens is, I, I, I try to learn uh, and, and, and to read one sentence takes me a half an hour to read a paragraph takes me two hours because they're using these big, big words, which everybody knows what they mean. And I don't know what they mean. So I start sweating it. And um, I went to, I went to the, the professor and I said, geez, I, he said, I, I can't help you. I, I know you got to write the exam like everybody else. So, 
I just used my magic markers, et cetera, going. One book was uh, uh, by a guy named Nissert, who was the king of all people in cognitive psychology. And another one was called, um, it, it was by uh, uh, the guy who does, uh, is it Myron uh, Lansky? Uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a huge, um, uh, he's a huge, it was called Psycho-Cybernetics. And uh, the psychology of learning, psychology of learning are, uh, and so the, the it was how we think is how we speak. And he connected the two things. And I went over those books. That one was easier. And I ended up writing the exam. And I, I was second in the class, like our highest mark in the class, because I taught myself to use language that I understood. But this book, uh, Psycholinguistics, it was Psycholinguistics. So the whole thing is that we speak the way we think. And if it comes out fuzzy out of your head, it's going to come out fuzzy. And the idea was, it's all about meaning. The big word was over and over again, mm. meaning, meaning, meaning. What you're communicating is meaning, not words, it's meaning. And if you get that meaning right, uh, then you're, uh, and it comes out of the brain. So uh, th that was something that I've treasured. I'm really glad I took that class, even though I thought I was I had no chance of even passing it, but I did learn that concept that when we're speaking, we're, we're conveying meaning. And if you don't get the meaning right, uh, you're, you're in big, big trouble. And the only way we have is by talking. You know, that's how we speak. So uh, that's our method of conveying meaning and agreeing on meaning. That is, I mean, I have to jump in here. I mean, this, I, for me, this feels like so I have a background. I'm not an engineer. I'm not studying physics. I studied philosophy and I feel like philosophers are trying to do nothing else but exactly this. Just trying. Okay, there are, uh, I, I can say, it. so there is at least half of them are trying to hide behind complexity. The other half is really trying <laughs> to make, put stuff really in simple terms and try to make it as explicit as they can. And I think it's, yeah. it's maybe it's more of an ideal to strive towards. Like probably you, I mean, how, how are you going to ever get there of being having a completely clear sentence? I don't know if that ever it really exists, but but it's <laughs> it, the, the struggle is exactly this. I mean, philosophy is nothing else but asking, what do you mean when you say? And then put yeah. in whatever you want and now try to make sense of it. And it's extremely hard and you can have discussions for 2000 years and not come to a conclusion. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so, so interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, I just, I, I never took a course in philosophy and one day it came to me, somebody said, you, what you're doing is philosophy. And I said, yeah, that's exactly, I agree, now yeah. I know the connection, that's the connection. And, uh, I, and I, that helped me discover what I meant by process. You know, uh, basically uh, there's process and content. And if you're going to be good at, uh, uh, at uh, helping people, you have to distinguish between the two. You have to concentrate on the process leave the content for the other person so uh, the, um, and, and and unfortunately leaders don't understand this and they get it all mixed up and they try to push their own thinking through so the way was uh, uh, the way it was described to me was okay you're sitting in front of a tree and you see the tree that's content now you step back and you see yourself looking at the tree so that's process. You are watching yourself and then you step back and you see yourself seeing yourself seeing the tree. So the thing becomes to be able to separate process from content. 
And uh, at, to be a good facilitator or teacher, you have to do the two things and you have to be able to separate the two. So if, uh, if you're helping a group of people, they have the content, they are the experts, they know what they're doing. You're, you're the facilitator taking them through a process uh, that helps them work their way through, uh, through to a problem. And, uh, and that's a huge leadership uh, uh, principle. What, what I do could be called leadership. And, and by the way, Scott, in your book, every, you go over that over and over again, where you say, here's what we say, then you shorten it. Here's what we and you shorten it. And you continually get people to speak, uh, uh, speak in simple terms all, all the way through. And, uh, uh, and it becomes shorter and shorter and more on the money. So, um, so it's, it's, it's uh, like you'd say, um, it's a nice day outside. Maybe it is, maybe, but if I say men thinks it's a nice day outside, ah, that's much more precise. So we oftentimes, we say, uh, it's, you know, we'll, we'll just say, uh, Charlie says that's too many. We don't argue if Charlie is right or wrong. We just put it down. Charlie did this, move on to the next, move on to the next. So we separate uh, uh, spending time on, uh, on content. Like I, I, one of my favorite people is uh, Michael Curtin, who helped me a lot. He's, uh, uh, and he's the one who invented uh, KAI, uh, that AI inventory. Uh, when I went to spend time with him in England, um, he helped me a lot create my profile uh, because he knew the mathematics so well. But but he didn't understand process. He just didn't understand. Pro- he thought he did. So we had a session where um, we started with the problem and somebody said, uh, we started fact finding and somebody said something and uh, Michael said, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't agree with that fact. I don't think it's a fact. So we're going to spend 15, 20 minutes arguing about whether it's a fact or not, but we're trying to diverge and gather information. Uh, but so we don't stop and we just keep on going, put it down. You don't like that? Say, Min said it, so-and-so said it, move on. It may not be important whatsoever, but there's some people think we have to go through and analytically, because they already believe they know what the problem is, they're just going to re- reduce it down, et cetera. Well, the creative process is, no, we just start with something and now we explode it up and come down, up and down, and maybe, a, uh, by the way, that's one of the problems uh, with uh, uh, design thinking uh, that uh, that uh, I'm learning, is that very often uh, people solve the original problem, and they work it down and work it down, and they end up with a small improvement on something, where the secret of design thinking is starting with something and coming up with a, reframing it into a much uh, much broader, bigger uh, possibility, and that's where the money uh, really comes in. So most people do not understand problem definition. They d- don't understand it. They think they do, but they don't. And that's where uh, I think uh, I, I think uh, most of the world does not. And that's the substance of our process. And that's why it's not easy to do. Defining the problem is not easy to do. It needs an open mind. So I'm hoping that. Uh, uh, I'm hoping that uh, uh, we may be on the cusp of maybe break, break, breakthrough, breakthrough on this. Um, so, uh, by the way, I, I made a note to myself. Uh, there are two books that I have coming out uh, as we speak. Uh, one is called uh, Scatterbrains, which talks about uh, the how having people with very different thinking styles 
can help a lot in uh, uh, doing a problem. And the other one's called Think Better. Uh, Larry Crace and I are putting Think Better together, which is simply to get people to understand a little about, uh, think about how you think, make it really, really simple. Uh, and uh, so that's coming out as well. And uh, uh, I'm working hard to get these things over the goal line uh, right now. Um, Looking forward to and, it. Uh, and so I said, make sure you mention scatterbrains and think better. And uh, that, and that brings us back to, that brings us to the profile. Uh, Scott, back to you again. Uh, I've been doing a lot of talking. I actually had a question. We we've touched upon the notion of, of of problems. You just talked about it now, and previously in the discussion, we discussed the notions of um, complicated, simple. And I have two kind of related questions. The first is then: so what is? How can we define uh, a problem from your perspective? And would you differentiate? the notion of complicated, complex problems. Yeah. Um, uh, basically, uh, uh, yeah, basically um, we, we, th I, we think the world, uh, world is, is pro problem solving. That, that's what we do every day. You wake up in the morning, you solve the problem of how to get out of bed. Uh, how to, it's pro all we do is problem solving, problem solving, problem solving uh, all the time. And, um, some problems are very uh, big, and some are so, but you never know uh, which uh, which level of a problem you're working with. For, and I'll I'll do the Irish. I think it's uh, time to do the. Uh, we have something called the Why Would Stopping Analysis, which is part of challenge mapping. And uh, so uh, at Procter and Gamble, when I was uh, uh, doing my job there, and uh, a product called uh, Irish Spring, a soap bar, which almost everybody knows, came out on the market and uh, immediately uh, was a huge hit. But it was by Colgate, not by us. And uh, it was a novel idea. It was a green stripe. It was striped. There were green and white stripes. And there's a guy on the commercial with a knife stroking the bar so you could see the stripes. Then they showed you a commercial where there was a guy in the middle of a meadow in Ireland. Everything was green. He's taking a shower and everything is refreshment. There's dew on the grass. There's a mountain and a stream. And uh, it's, it's a lovely situation. And the idea becomes if you buy this bar with the green stripes, you're going to feel more refreshed. This bar takes off like a rocket. And P&G has been scooped, a very conservative company. So what they do is like everybody does, they form a team and they put the team aside and say, go solve this problem. Okay. So uh, now I get a call from the team about six months later, maybe not six months. I don't know. And they said, uh, I'm the leader of the team and we got a big problem. Uh, we're losers. Uh, we're, we are not producing and um, we have made, and everybody wants to quit. We have made six outstanding green stripe bars and everyone we we do a buy test with them and, and we come out equal. That's not good enough because at our company, if you're second, you've got to be better, not equal. So we're really stuck and you're doing this creativity stuff and maybe you could help us. I said, oh, let's give it a try. So we got the group together and uh, we started with the, what they were working was, 
how might we make a better green stripe bar? This is what we're doing, and they can't figure out how to do it. So we start with that. Everything is, how, by the way, every problem in the state is how might we. It's very positive and uh, it's possibility. How might we make better green stripe bars? So we started with that in the morning. And I said, I'd like us to use the why would stopping uh, uh, analysis. And so I said, okay, I'm the, I'm the process guy. You're the content guys. Uh, why might we want to create a better green stripe bar? And somebody said right after that, we have lost market share. I said, good, let's turn that into another challenge. It turned out to be, how might we regain market share? So now, now we got two. Regain market share is quite broad. And how might we better green stripe bar is narrower. So the way the process works, we, uh, we continue to diverge. And my job is to say, good stuff. Why else might we want to make a better green stripe bar? And nobody, nobody could think of anything. They, they just couldn't. And I said, okay, 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 let me try something. I said, let's pretend that I'm not us. I'm, I'm, a, new, I'm a consumer. So from a consumer's point of view, why might we want to make a better green stripe bar? Somebody said, finally, I'd like to feel more refreshed. So that turned out, how might we make consumers feel more refreshed? So we had three of them, uh, the broadest at the top, the narrowest, and this one in the middle. Uh, how do we uh, help people feel more refreshed in a bar? Well, what we did was, we, uh, we, what you do in challenge, you keep on asking, why else, why else was it? We had a collage, about 50 different how might we statements. And when it came time to pick, the one they picked was, the one in the middle, uh, how might we make a more refreshing bar? Now, if you ever want to hear an aha, that was the enormous aha. Uh, it was like getting out of the box, getting out of the box. They were excited and that got them out of the box that they'd been in. So in the afternoon, we went to solutions. We came up with about 300 ideas how to make a bar, uh, a more refreshing bar. When we converged, the ones two that they picked was somebody said, when I think of refreshment, I go to the seacoast. Somebody else said, uh, I'd like to go to the beach, sitting on the white sand and the blue sky, etc." And that out came a bar called Coast, C-O-A-S-T. And the image was blue and white swirly, sitting on the beach, feeling more refreshed. That bar finally beat Irish Spring in a blind test, finally. And they were given the rights to go ahead and market it. So that's, that, that's, to me, that's problem definition. That's the essence of problem definition. And uh, you got to speak clearly. And we ask the question, why to go up? And we ask the question, what's stopping you to go down? Because often you've got to go down. What's stopping me is dot, 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 you know, something very exact. Uh, and uh, at the end, you finish diverging together. Now the team can pick the one or two or three, which are the most, most critical and go ahead. So that's what we that that's what we mean by problem definition, uh, and any problem that you pick, we call it fuzzy situation. So if you say, uh, you know, I don't know how to get my son through college, that's a fuzzy situation. Uh, is that a good? You this person, that's the problem you really want to solve. Yes, they got ownership. Now that's a starting point, and now how might I get? Now we do fact-finding, fact-finding, diverge, converge, and then we generate a lot of how might we statements on step three. Step three is problem. Step one is 
found a fuzzy situation. Step two is called fact-finding. And fact-finding is very, it's not reductive. It doesn't go downwards, it goes up. Uh, we ask questions like, uh, what do you know or think you know about this problem? What don't you know but wish you knew? Why is this such a big problem? What have you thought of or tried already? Uh, if this problem were resolved, what actually would you have that you don't have now? And are you assuming anything that you don't have to assume? Divergent, divergent, divergent. Now we start picking, start picking, and the, pro and the few that we pick, they trigger the uh, problem definition. Now they trigger the problem definition. And now you start creating challenges, how might we? And then you pick. But what you've done is you've done a, a, a huge job on defining the problem. And almost always, it turns out to be very, very different from the one you started with, which is a great one to start with. And uh, there might be two or three. Uh, it's like a it's like a log jam. What you end up with when you do the problem definition, you end up with a log jam. And uh, when you try to solve a, a destroy a log jam, you always pick the one dot one log that you think will uh, will break it open the most. And that's what we do. What's the log in there? You're going to pick out, and not the most, the biggest or the smallest. What's the log? And you pull that one, and that becomes your how might I that you go on to solve. Now, so in our process, the first three steps have nothing to do with solutions. They only have to do with problem, uh, uh, problem definition. The fourth step is coming up with ideas, and they're much easier. And the fifth step is evaluate, evaluate the ideas. And the sixth step is plan. We, if, uh, if you ever gone to a meeting that there's, we go to another meeting. Never leave a meeting without a plan for what we're going to do next. Critical. So six sets is a plan for how we're going to implement that solution. And then selling. Uh, we, uh, you always have to gain acceptance. And then action is the last one. And action is a, is a step. We don't take it for granted. If you don't do step A, you didn't do anything. You've got to do it. Somebody's got to do it. So, uh, so for us, uh, um, that's um, that's the uh, the real name of the game is problem definition. And you know, Einstein once said, uh, if I had an hour to save the world, I'd spend 55 minutes defining. That's exactly what it means. And once you've defined it, often the solution pops up. It all it almost becomes evident as what the what the idea is. But most people do not understand this. It's it's a, it's a play. Like engineering schools, all they do is teach certain solutions. You know, you do this, you do this, you do this. And, and most of those solutions will just fit. A, there'll be all kinds of problems. Those solutions don't fit. And what we get people doing, by the way, business schools are even worse at this. They teach them how to analyze a, a case and they get the right answer to the case. But in the real world, nobody gives you cases. You have things you never dreamed about. And so th this is a, a, we don't know how to, we, we, uh, it's hard to teach this when you, when the, the teachers don't, can't even teach this. So it's the ability to say, uh, I don't know. The big ability to say, I don't know. So if people uh, will come to us and say, uh, I need a whole lot more of da da da, can you help me? I say, I don't know. We have a process that might find out what you're really after, and we might be able to help you. And that, so that's the, um, that's a, a big thing about our process is, um, you got to be able to say you don't know if you can help. Like, um, 
yeah. Oh, we got a problem. Well, I could do team building. I could do high performance systems. I could do this. I could do that. Every one of those is a solution. The reason uh, my stuff works, they say, I don't know. And if we can sit down, we could define the problem you're trying to solve. And maybe we could pick a solution. And that is the uh, enormous. And I've been trained that way really heavily uh, in uh, the ability to say, I don't know. And uh, uh, I worked, uh, you know, one of my uh, best colleagues was Sid Parnes uh, um, at the um, Creative, uh, Creative Education Foundation that Alex Osborne started about. And uh, the uh, most people go there and they are looking for deferring judgment and looking for good solutions, whatever. But what Sid and I understood was the power of asking the right question, the problem definition. And that's when I went back to uh, Procter & Gamble, I said, I had so many smart people, PhDs in chemistry and whatever, who would try to solve a problem by coming up with different solutions, different solutions. And what, uh, what they didn't know, and I found out here I am, I'm a, I got a bachelor's degree in engineering physics, and I'm trying to help these people. I said, uh, just to get them to say, well, let's look at what this problem might be and working on the problem definition, how to break it down. They would think it was, I was so um, boosted my confidence that I was able to help uh, these smart people by just getting them to uh, really agree on what the problem was before they went. And, and, and that's what really made, made it work for me. Man, I want to, uh, when you were, um, you asked some questions a minute ago, like I believe it's part of the divergent exercise. Uh, well, I think yeah. in the, well, and, and I, I wonder if you could repeat those. That, uh, one of them was something like, what might you be assuming that you don't need to, but it sounded like there were like three or four key questions in that divergent. I wonder if yeah, you well, I'll, I'll go, yeah, I'll do them again. What, the first one is, what do you know or think you know about this fuzzy situation? Either know it or you think you know it. Put it down. Uh, second, what do you not know, but wish you knew? So that's a big one. Uh, what don't you know, but you wish you knew? See, we're opening up. Third one is, uh, why is this a problem for you? Why can't you make it go away? Very, very specific. Tell me exactly, you know, and we take whatever you say. And of course, if you have a group, they help each other think of things. Uh, you know, they, they come up with things. Number four, what have you already thought or tried? Like you've probably had this on your mind a lot of time, but what have you already thought of or tried? And out comes more. And for a team, let's get on the same data, same database. Let's get to where we are right now. Uh, and then uh, this is uh, maybe the top one. If this problem were resolved, what would you have that you do not have now? What is it? Look to the future. Say one year from now, you're so happy because it's probably not solved. What is it you got? Do you have more money in your pocket? Do you have um, a better relationship with somebody? Uh, exactly. But you got to be able to say specifically. So that goes up, all these things. And then finally, what might you be assuming that you don't have to assume? And you that's hard because you if you knew what it was, you wouldn't be assuming it. But if you get a group of people in the room, they'd say, well, maybe you're assuming this. Maybe you're assuming that. And a lot of times um, that will unlock uh, some really interesting facts. So that, uh, you know, in a good session, that might be 55, 60 or 70 facts uh, in about a half hour period. 
and then you start uh, you start converging. You get people to start picking the ones that they think are the most important or the most thought provoking. We always you know, say, how do we pick? Well, I say, listen, uh, I could say the most important, yeah, but also the most thought provoking, the most intriguing things you didn't think about. Pick those, and uh, and everybody picks. So they all picking on their uh, you know with their own knowledge, and uh, now we get the fifty five or sixty down to about uh, usually usually about twelve or thirteen, <clears throat> and then everybody says what they why why they picked it and what they meant by it. Why did I pick it this? So now I'm listening. Somebody else, you picked this one. Why did you pick it? Now you end up with some people pick the same one, three different people, but for three different reasons and three different uh, uh, meanings as to what it meant. So now you're spending, uh, if you had an hour, half, now it's another half an hour. And you talk and you talk and you talk. And now you start uh, agreeing on this fundamental, uh, fundamental few. And that's the telescoping method. Uh, so those are the questions. And uh, we just know those questions work. I mean, where'd they come from? We found that they work. And uh, uh, and so, uh, um, yeah, like uh, uh, I did, um, uh, I, you know, I, in my job at Mac, I had to, you know, write a, a paper or two every year, which I did. And um the very first one I ever uh, researched I did uh, was in, uh, being at Procter & Gamble, a big experiment on, can you really teach people to be more, more creative? You're, you're running around telling people, but could you run an experiment? I was lucky that I had uh, a great teacher at the university who taught me how to do real research. And we, um, uh, the Mahupani plant called and said, we'd like you to do some training yeah, and creativity. And I said, uh, let's make a deal. Uh, uh, have you got a bunch of, yeah, we got, uh, we got 32 engineers in our, uh, is there a chance of splitting it into two groups? Oh yeah, we could do that. So what I did, I did a ran, an experiment where we randomly assigned the engineers into two groups of 16. And my, uh, this, I thought about what, how do you, what's the question? What are you trying to come up with? And I said, it took me about nine months to come up with a question, define the problem. What's the problem? And uh, I said, in the, in the facts, there's all kinds of people doing training and uh, brainstorming and stuff like that. And there's all kinds of arguments about does it work or doesn't work in the real world, da, 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 da. And uh, there's also people saying uh, uh, groups, groups will never work. You got to da, 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 da. So I said, you know what? There's one piece of research, one guy said, um, I've tried to use this uh, with, uh, with uh, managers and basically it, it, yeah, they get it, but they can't use it in the real world. They just can't. There was another piece of research in 1960 by uh, Cohen, Whitmire and Fuck, and they said they had two days with a, um, uh, uh, a hospital group of managers and they found that they, they used this uh, their process on a real problem. It worked, and it didn't work on fake problems. So now I got two opposite things here. One says, "Yeah, well, the speaker was this group did two days, two days. This guy did one hour. So my I got it. If you provide training of high impact." 
for long enough with a really good process, you've got a chance to get people brains from saying, I get it, I like it, and they buy into it. And they change their they change their attitude. They actually change it. And if you don't get that, it'll never work. So you can do training where you just put up four brainstorming rules and think something will work. But if you get people to say, ah, I understand deferring judgment. I like it. Ah, I like this idea of diverging. I like it. Oh, I like converging. And they say, I like it. You've got the opportunity for a behavior change. So what I did was I trained uh, 16 for two and a half days and we measured all kinds of behavior changes and things. And then the, and the other group, I gave them a placebo. I gave them films and stuff like that. Control and it worked. It worked. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it worked. And um, I did this. So, now, the reason I was able to do it, I had all the resources of Procter & Gamble beside me. I wasn't do, I, I had everybody helping me because they all were interested in this thing. And so I wrote probably the greatest dissertation anybody's ever done uh, because I had the resources. My uh, chairman, George Green, when I left, he had every PhD student read my dissertation because it was such a classic. Whatever George taught me, I did it. George, you do that? Yep, 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 do that. George, yep, yep. And I made up my, there were no, I had to make up my own measures. There, there were no measures for creativity. So I made up a whole bunch of measures and they, uh, you know, and then we found that they were significant and whatever. So the reason I'm mentioning that is so that gave me confidence. Hey, I know what I'm doing. And I can say the Center for Research and Productivity, it does work. And so I don't know where I got off on that. But oh, here's the such thing happened. Whenever you do research, you get a new you get unexpected results. All right, folks, that's a good place to end part one of our chat with Dr. Min Bassador. You're going to want to listen in next time, the next episode, to see about these unexpected creativity results and how it launched the Bassador Profiler. You can learn more about Min and his work at Bassador.com. That's B-A-S-A-D-U-R.com. And that concludes this episode of the Product Quest Podcast. Let us know what your thoughts are at productquestpodcast at gmail.com, and we will see you next time.